All right, so as regular listeners to this podcast may know, I have sifted through probably hundreds of near-death experiences, um, either reading them or listening to uh, the people who experience them uh, narrate um, their experiences. Up till now, a lot of my treatment of near-death experiences has related to uh, how seriously we can take them. Uh, To what extent do they square with each other? Can they be made um, to agree with each other as a sort of total package? Or are there some that we have to weed out as unreliable? And if so, which ones? So I've kind of been discussing them in the aggregate up till now. Um, However, um, having listened uh, to, to hundreds of NDEs, there is one that always stays with me as the most memorable. Um, And I feel like I want to devote an episode to that near-death experience today. It's the near-death experience of Vietnam veteran Steve Gardipi, as related by himself on uh, a podcast called NDE Radio. So to clarify, I'm skeptical of all near-death experiences, which isn't the same thing as being critical of them or, or negative toward them. Um, just, you know, 100%, not 100% trusting of, of everything that I hear um, uh, in uh, near-death experiences. That being said, and, and, and this and this near-death experience is, is no exception. There are some things in there, with, in, uh, there are some things in Steve Gardipi's near-death experience that I have a hard time interpreting and making sense of. Some I feel I can, others I don't know what to do with. But um, in some sense, that's not really the point. The point is the the, the beauty um, and the evocative descriptions um, in this near-death experience, which are made uh, more salient and striking by the fact that um, the speaker is not especially articulate. There are some, like the near-death experience of Pete Panagor, um, whose um, interests, I think, derive derives mostly um, from the way in which they are presented. This experience is a little different. I mean, not, not to demean Mr. Pangor's experience, but I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, you read near-death experiences, a lot of them are really boring, actually. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just things like, you know, it was love, it was light, it was really great, it was indescribable. Um, and uh, the, the, the ones that get into more... Mm, metaphysical detail are more interesting, but those are correlated with sort of longer length of death. They're correlated with, quote, dying harder and dying longer, um, to to borrow a phrase from near-death experiencer uh, Eben Alexander. So it's not because the experience was was interesting and unforgettable to the experiencer that it's going to come across that way to whoever listens to it. I really like uh, Mr. Panagor's um, uh, telling of his near-death experience. And I also like other um, experiences like that of Howard Storm. That's very memorable. It's probably my favorite from a theological standpoint, um, insofar as it's very Christian. But really, out of all the near-death experiences that I've listened to and sifted through, there is none that has like the formal and aesthetic qualities that this one has. So I'm going to play the episode and I'm going to comment on it as we go. Um, but uh, bear in mind, again, the reason that I'm sharing this is not so much um, necessarily for theological edification. I, I don't know how to interpret a lot of the statements that are in here. And they're certainly not um, all consistent with everyone else's near-death experience. The point is the the beauty, um, the evocative descriptions um, of this um, of this experience. And with that being said, I'm just going to get rolling. The International Association for Near Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to INS NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. 
Our guest today, Vietnam vet and NDEer Steve Gardapi, is married with a son and daughter. He was one of six kids and comes from a military family. His dad was in the Army Air Corps, and his son is now retired after serving 28 years in the Navy. Steve himself joined the Air Force Reserves in September of 1966. In the spring of 1968, he transferred to active duty in the U.S. Army and went from basic training to nine months of helicopter training. April 1969 to April 1970 was his first tour in Vietnam. He was sent to instructor pilot school and then returned to Vietnam and was put back into the slick platoon flying UH-1H helicopters and then into the scout platoon. On the 28th of July, he was tasked to find an enemy force that shot up a Huey, killing several people in the aircraft. He found the enemy's base camp, but his helicopter came under intense fire, hit more than 100 times, and was shot down. His right Achilles tendon was severed by shrapnel. A bullet went through his left leg, and his arm, his left arm was all but blown off. Both bones in his left forearm were shattered, and one major nerve and one artery severed. Most of the muscle was also blown out. His crew chief gunner received a bullet, and uh, and here to tell what happened after that is Steve Gardapi. Steve, welcome to NDE Radio. Yeah, good afternoon. <laughs> Steve, you said in an interview at Lake Conroe that uh, that you had, up till that time, you'd been raised thinking God was a venge vengeful God, and you were angry with him. But Steve, there you were, you and your gunner on the ground, all shot up and, and losing blood. What were you thinking about God at that point? I was starting to bargain with him, despite how I had felt about him in my previous life. And like I said, I was in the middle of the base camp. Steve and I were in the middle of the base camp. We were surrounded by the enemy. The aircraft, of course, was total. And I was getting weak real fast because of my blood loss. And I, quite frankly, I started bargaining with God. I knew the only way I could get out of there was for him to get me out of there. I, I couldn't do it on my own. Yes, wow. Now, were you in a lot of pain, or, or was that um, was it something that you were in such so much shock that you weren't feeling a lot of pain? Well, initially when I was shot, when I was still flying, I didn't even know I was shot. I felt absolutely nothing. I didn't even feel the impact. It was when I couldn't feel the control of my left arm, but I looked down and saw my arm. Well, I couldn't even find it. It was missing. It was blown behind my gunner's back. Mm. Shortly after that, we crashed. My gunner pulled me out of the aircraft, laid me on the ground, and by then I was—I think I was starting to go into shock, and I felt a little tingling in my left arm. Mm. And uh, my gunner was kind of yelling at me that I was losing blood, and he was getting a little nervous. But again, I felt absolutely no pain. I just felt kind of a numbness and started feeling lightheaded. And then I think you said things started to get blurry and, and go to gray and, and then to black? Yes, I, I was, as I was laying there trying to get, you know, orient myself to where I was in, in the base camp in relation to where I knew the bunkers were because of my, over, you know, my overhead uh, analysis of the base camp. And I was looking around and my vision started getting a little blurry. And it, this happened rather rapidly. Mm. And it was getting more and more blurry then. I was starting to see kind of gray and I was losing... At some point, I couldn't distinguish anything. I was just seeing pure gray. And then that started turning, like from the outside in, getting tunnel vision, it turned black until all I could see was black. Then the black started shrinking, and all I saw was a speck of black. Hmm. And at this point, I guess, you saw yourself. You saw your, your head lying by a bush and realized that you were out of your body? Actually, at the time, I, it, I didn't realize it was out of body. I, I remember laying there as I was looking around trying to figure out where I was in the base camp in relation to the bunker. So, and as you look at yourself, I saw my legs and I saw my, you know, my body. As I'm looking around, you just happen to see yourself. And as I was looking, I noticed, well, I remember years later, I was looking at my entire body and I was, I'd say, about 10, 15 feet above it. And that's when I noticed my head was laying next to this one little bush. It was one of the points of orientation that I had picked out when I was scouting the base camp. Wow. And then from that point, everything started getting black around me. That's when I started getting tunnel vision. Everything went black. 
except for this tiny little speck. And all I could see was total whiteness and a little black speck. And then I think you said your consciousness started to expand. Exactly. At that point, I'm looking at this black speck, and the black speck started expanding out, and everything inside that circle was incredible enhanced abilities. And it, and I was still near the ground with that black speck, and as it opened up, everything inside that, I'll call it a bubble, I could see mainly it was expanding into the ground, into the, the tree. I could see the roots of the tree. But I wasn't looking at them as we look at something three-dimensionally. I was totally enveloped everything inside that bubble. I could see the cells of the plant, the water molecules, and the nutrients as they're permeating the cell walls, bringing nutrients up like veins inside the plant. And I was able to keep track of tens of thousands of cells and molecules and all these nutrients. And it dawned on me that's how a plant survives. And I remember thinking, this is so simple. Why couldn't we understand it before? And at some point, the blackness went to a bright light, didn't it? Right. I, I was looking at, at the, uh, again, all, I wasn't looking, and I was absorbed in all these cells, and then everything started getting brighter and brighter as I was just looking at this one bubble. As I was starting to so continue to expand out, and as I expanded, expanded, things were getting brighter and brighter until it was so bright. But as it got brighter, it I could feel it. it. I felt a, a wonderful feeling, and the brightness should have hurt my eyes, but it it was calming, and it was like, like a sense of love, this brightness, until it got so bright, it became indescribably bright. Wow. And then all of a sudden, I was enveloped in just a pure, super bright light. Wow. I think elsewhere you described it as so bright, anything compared to it was like a dark hole. Right, and you, you know, of course, our human mind has a limited ability to perceive things, and so we think something is bright. Like you look at metal, as you heat it, it's red, then it's orange, then it's yellow, then it becomes so bright we can't look at it. Mm -hmm. And this went almost infinitely beyond that. And the only way I could describe it, a, a description I came up with sometime later, was it was so bright it was an incredible clearness. It was so bright as to be clear. There, there is no ability in the human uh, ability to see imagine something that bright and yet i think you've also said that uh we confuse light with love so this is really uh, a god's love experience that you're experiencing well and just as i was still kind of in awe of what was around me i i started to feel a presence and the presence as i was feeling it i was aware of i wasn't like in front of something i was completely surrounded by a presence at the same time, I realized I was completely surrounded by love, a love that was so intense, but I actually felt it, which we can't imagine that again in this, this body that we're in today. Mm. But it was, uh, like I, I kind of jokingly tell people, you stand in air that there's no movement, and it's the same as your body temperature. You can't feel the air, although you know it's there. Then, like I say, you soak in a nice, warm, comforting bath. You can feel the water. You can feel the warmth. Of course, this love is infinitely beyond that, but I actually could feel God's love. It's indescribable. Wow. And that initial expansion of your consciousness that you described earlier, God said more about that, didn't he? I always thought if and when I went to wherever heaven supposedly was, which I found out later, you don't go to heaven when you die. You become everywhere. That's what heaven is. You become everywhere with God. And I was aware of these, what I call superpowers. Okay, let's comment on this. It's one of the first interesting ideas presented in the NDE. Um, the, the idea of heaven as a sort of identification with the consciousness of God. You become everywhere. Well, it's like, first of all, let's discuss, you know, what God is or what God might be. God as conscious, ultimate reality. You know, what is, what does consciousness do? Consciousness always moves toward greater oneness with its objects. It's characterized by a sort of eternal inner expansion. Both love and knowledge consist in ever greater degrees of union with their objects and the idea that that heaven is more like the consciousness of god than it is like some 
other place that we may enter um, in our sort of linear temporal reality is certainly an idea that you'll find in, in uh, the, the work of Chris Langan, who's, uh, you know, as I've stated many times, he's my probably my favorite theologian. Chris Langan speaks of the so-called non-terminal domain, the highest dimension of reality and the sort of time-like um, dimension of God's own uh, consciousness. Asked to characterize um, the, the, the time-like nature of um, uh, the non-terminal domain, uh, and specifically to comment on whether it was like infinite temporality or if it was uh, timelessness, Langan uh, clarified that it is the latter. And of course, I've spoken many times about what timelessness might be or imagined to be. It's not simply the same thing as no experience, which is sort of what one imagines utter stasis uh, to be. It, it would seemingly have to involve uh, elements of either uh, simultaneity or sequentiality, or really both, because each presupposes the other. But probably the closest analog that we have to it would be the now, the now that, that one experiences in meditation when one um, identifies um, as much as possible uh, with, with the, the objects of one's consciousness such that there is no longer a sort of um, egoic barrier between the self and the objects of one's consciousness. Now, the, the sort of the yogis of India we're probably the first people to do this and, and really comment and write about it, uh, you know. And and in that category, I include the the first, you know, I include the Buddha and his followers because they were um, essentially Indian sages. And they often speak of becoming one with everything, becoming one with God, becoming God. And one thing that I would comment on here is that um, it is not simply in virtue. Um, of becoming identified with the contents of one's consciousness, that one becomes God. One can imagine the difference between, you know, the great bubble that is God's consciousness, let's say, and, and um, the little bubble that is uh, an individual's consciousness. Um, and within that bubble, the, the little bubble, um, there can either be a barrier or not. But whether the barrier is there or not, whether the barrier of self and egoic chatter, the default mode network um, of uh, descriptive neuroscience, um, whether that barrier is there, that bubble is still a small bubble. It's not everything. It's not the experience of God, which you'll sort of find confirmation of that in what you're about to hear. Let's go back. And I'm thinking this is in my mind, infinitely more powerful than I ever imagined God to be. And here I am, you know, just my little humble self. And I've got all these powers. And so I kind of said to myself, I'm a super God. I was really impressed with my ability to do things the human mind can't grasp. And people have asked me if God spoke to me. I felt his thoughts. His thoughts were my thoughts, but he didn't say words to me. So everything I describe are words that I have used to describe the thoughts that he let me experience. And he was kind of amused at me, kind of almost lovingly, but laughingly. I think I'm a super God. And uh, all of a sudden I got this image and it was like two hands came out of this light out of nowhere holding this, this tiny little premature baby. And I okay, now let me just comment on like the, the formal and aesthetic character of this experience that why it stayed with me so long because because the the first image or impression that i remembered or took away from the experience after i heard it was the idea of steve gardipi hovering over his own body which was lying in pieces uh on the the jungle floor of vietnam and he he is as it were backlit by a brightness of nuclear intensity and then out of this brightness one sees two hands um, uh, extending forward and holding a, a, a premature baby. And one imagines the, 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 the warm, roaring uh, paternal laughter of the God who, who claims fatherhood over Steve Gardipi and over 
all things, who experiences himself through the conduit of each of us. It reminds me a little bit of a quotation from, I want to say, Calvin, who said that all knowledge of God begins in knowledge of the self. Each self is prepared as a vessel for the, for the, for the glorification and the self-understanding of God. I could feel his emotions, and he was like a proud father, like I felt proud when my son and my daughter were born. And I could feel the exact same feelings, like he was just a, a common person filled with immense love that was so proud, like I was the only thing in his universe at that moment was just me. And his thoughts were, you're now being born into my world. And it's also, even in the state that you are in, is what the thought he conveyed to me. And of course, as a super god, he said, you cannot begin to comprehend what I am. Which I kind of put me back in my place. Now, I didn't think God was a god, but I didn't have... Four I love that line so much. It's like you, you you're you beginning to taste you know, what I am, and you think you're a god. That's true, but you have no conception of what I am. ...to describe what I had become, and yet as this being that was infinitely powerful, I was still a premature infant compared to what God himself is. And I thought that was interesting because you said you, you yourself were actually a premature baby. Yes, I was, when I was born at seven months, uh, I was... Somewhere around there, I was about four pounds, my parents had told me. So I was a little tiny thing, quite a, quite a few years of my life. So it's almost like me looking at myself when I was born with the proudness that I felt when I watched my son and my daughter. So while God was saying you can't comprehend me, he was still saying you are going to expand out into everywhere. Well, at, at that point, I, I knew I was in God's presence, and I was just overwhelmed by his love and how comfortable I felt there. And, and the other thing that, that surprised me about being in, well, like I'll say being in heaven, is when I got shot up, my gunner saw me as being unconscious, but I never lost consciousness in my mind. I transitioned from my body into this little dot and then expanded out into God's world, and my mind never lost track of time. It never lost any sense of self-awareness. So, so again, I'm up there in heaven, and all of a sudden I said, wait a minute, where is my body? Hmm. I couldn't see my body, but I could feel myself. So I started touching my, you know, my, my chest and my arms. I touched you know, my right hand and my left hand and my left hand and my right, which, of course, my body on the ground didn't have that left arm and left hand. So it, it was fascinating to me. I was complete and healthy and strong, even though I couldn't see my body. And as I was feeling myself, God made known to me, he said, I want you to leave your fat body, if you will, and expand out into the cosmos, into his world. And I kind of stepped out, for lack of a better way to put it, and I was everywhere all of a sudden. I was automatically everywhere in God's creation. And it frightened me for a moment, and I stepped back in, and I, I stepped in and out, and God kept encouraging me, I want you to expand out. And my word's not his, but his thought was, I want you to expand out into the cosmos, into my creation, and know all these things. You know, I, I can get down to a, a cell and know all the aspects of a single cell, yet at the same time, I could know all things of God's entire creation. And I could feel love that, you know, of course, God's love. And so the last time I stepped in my body, it dawned on me, it was so confining as to be very, very uncomfortable. And I know any time I wanted to go in, I could if I wanted, but I no longer wanted to. I wanted to be out there with God and his creation and explore everything that he had ever created and have the ability to understand it, to appreciate it, and to enjoy it. And also enjoy all of, like I said, incredibly immense love. Did you feel like you were looking at all of creation or that you were all of creation like God? <laughs> it's going to sound bad, but you know, in the Bible they talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and the Trinity, and it's not just that. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is what I felt there, and all of us. We are part of God. So we are part of his creation. It's, um, so yes, I, I felt that 
I'm like kind of part of him. It's, it's uh, like a homogeneous situation. Right. Wow. So yes, I, I, God is, it's like God is separate and I was separate, yet we're the same, just like the Trinity. I love it. Okay, so this is a great sort of articulation of what I've elsewhere described as, you know, you borrowing language um, from the religious tradition in which I was raised, uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's um, uh, statement, that the relationship between, uh, I'll say, soul and super soul, I, I want to say, uh, Jiva and Paramatma, or maybe Atman and Brahman, that relationship is a chintya beta a beta. It's inconceivable, uh, per Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, it's inconceivable sameness and difference, or inconceivable difference and non-difference. Now, I would quibble over whether it's truly or, or, or absolutely inconceivable, because in order to be real, it has to be consciously intelligible in some way. Um, even a, a, a mysterian must grapple with the possibility that the, the incommunicable precisely in virtue of being beyond logical limitation, um, is in fact uh, communicable. So this is getting at sort of like what in, what in Hindu theology has been described as like the, the qualified uh, uh, non-dualism of, uh, of Ramanuja. Here's a, here's a way to get at it. Here's a way to figure out what's being discussed. Lee Whittings asked, were you the creation or were you looking at it? I think the answer there would be both. That's how consciousness operates. It stands distinct from its object as subject, and yet it is its own backdrop. Um, it is at the same time united with its object. Um, Chris Langan characterizes the sort of minimal form of ultimate reality as a syndifionesis or uh, difference in an underlying sameness. Everywhere, consciousness, at its most irreducible and primal level, is, is the form that, that Langan calls MU, or multiplex unity, which, you know, my, my Christian friends and I might also call trinity. It's there, you know, there are two hypostases, there's an underlying uh, usia, that is to say, there are two um, exemplars um, and an underlying um, quality in the in the the diphionic or different seeing phase or aspect of consciousness. Uh, the hypostasis the hypostases are differentiated, and in the cinetic or sameness seeing aspect or phase of consciousness, they are integrated. Their, their, their similarity is observed, uh, it, is, it is apprehended, it is perceived. And each of these qualities and, 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 and movements of the mind presupposes the other. Ian McGilchrist has a wonderful um, uh, lecture um, on the unity of opposites, which I'll probably have to do a commentary on later. Um, he ends up saying some things that I said verbatim in my conversation with Jed, the idea that it is not either, either or, or both and, but both either or and both and. There is logic, there is differentiation, there is self, there is other, but all these things presuppose at bedrock some ontological underlying unity. And this triune structure, if you like, is, is everywhere present in consciousness. Consciousness is, if you will, a, a hologram or holograph uh, made up of these sort of hological units. And everything in it is, thereby, in the, the image of, of, of the one consciousness partakes of the structure of, of that, that one consciousness. Everything that exists is in the image of God and is a microcosm of the whole. This is why panentheism is the best description of God. As, as capturing his simultaneous imminence and transcendence, which ultimately derive just from the, the structure of consciousness itself. When you were looking at this expanded view of things, did you see other beings, uh, alien worlds, that sort of thing? 
no accident during my whole experience other than around that that bush and the tree roots and the, like I said the, the grains and the sand and all that was the only thing I saw like God was giving me a glimpse of what my powers would be and then like I said I, I closed into this little black dot I mean I'm sorry as after I expanded out and as I was expanding out it got brighter and brighter uh-huh. then all of a sudden I was just surrounded by this super bright light which I could feel is is a, is a love but during my entire experience I I never saw anything other than I felt God's presence I saw the image he gave me of the, the premature baby but I had no visions of anything else at that time it's just like a personal conversation between he and I about you know he loved me and he wanted me to enjoy his creation and wanted me to go out and be part of it and be part of him did you have the sense that you were that all of creation was heaven or was heaven a, a, a different place? No, heaven, I was talking to my father one time, like I, I kind of alluded to earlier, and I said, the perception is, or the belief is when you die, you go to heaven. When you die, you don't go anywhere. You become everywhere. So heaven is God. God is heaven. Everything that he creates, it's like you have the physical world of everything he created, then it like overlaps into the spiritual world of everything he created. But in heaven, we can explore and enjoy the physical cosmos or his physical creations. At the same time, we enjoy the the holiness and the goodness in heaven. It's like they overlap. I think somewhere you said that uh, it's like having all the knowledge of the dictionary, but the bad words aren't there. Which I thought was a great description. Yes, that, that was I, at that testimonial I gave at the Crosswaters event. I, I, I'm trying to make it simple for people if they take a large dictionary and anything that has any negative connotation or meanness or sadness or regret, and you tear that out. Mm-hmm. It's as if God has forgiven everything and He has taken away the, or the ability to perceive pain or suffering or regret or guilt. And the only thing in heaven is goodness and happiness and forgiveness and love and awe and, and beauty. It, it's, it's hard for the human mind, or at least me, to, to, con- to grasp the concept of everything good and absolutely nothing bad. Yeah, me too, because of what I was saying about the unity of opposites. It seems to be a criterion of, of intelligibility, of identifiability, of reality, uh, even, that a, that a phenomenon be sort of discriminable from its complement. You know, this is why I spoke so much about predicates and their complements. It's an idea I got from Chris Langan, uh, and, uh, well, and, you know, it's everywhere else, too, like in the Tao, the Tao Te Ching, which is really a favorite book of mine. Um, So, yeah, it's certainly difficult to understand how there can be only goodness and love and light if there is not somewhere at some time in some way, even if only in memory, um, uh, the absence of love and goodness and light. That is to say, um, the darkness, um, what is, you know, what is suffering and what is intentionally inflicted suffering when coupled with um, the possibility of human freedom, um, uh, what is what is evil, you know, evil, evil as a privation, uh, or is a privation, evil is a privatio boni. So yeah, that's that's hard to understand. It reminds me of Langan describing the the perfection of God that exists at the primary level um, that uh, of his consciousness. If you take the idea of panpsychism and this idea of like different levels of scale, the highest level of reality is the one where everything connects. Everything is one. One consciousness um, that is that is solipsistic in the sense that nothing exists outside it. It's a little bit like the Kabbalistic idea that at the primary of reality, only God exists. Um, and you know, I, I think we can we can have that idea if we don't collapse into some absolute flat monism or pantheism, and understand that the objects of God's consciousness are panpsychically subjects of consciousness in their own right. They have this kind of logical um, property. Um, of being little, little internal mirrors of the whole or facets of a jewel, understand us as like fractionations of God's consciousness, kaleidoscopic lenses through which the light of his self-understanding turns. But yeah, how there can be a consciousness absolutely devoid 
of, of negative experience, I have no understanding at all. <laughs> so let's go back. Let's go. And I think at that conference, he said also, God wants to love and wants to forgive everything, but we have to want it. In other words, it just doesn't come automatically. And so in one of the testimonials that was given at, at one of our events, man given the testimonial said he gave a gift. He described what God gives us as a gift. Anyone further describe a gift as something that is freely given to you, like no strings attached, so to speak. But you have to accept it. You can't get a gift if you won't accept it. It's not a gift to somebody that can give it to you. So to, to get God's gift of love in heaven, we have to want it. We have to ask for it. We can't, like I said in my video, God will not pull us kicking and screaming into heaven. But if we want to go, like I said, I'm laying out there and I tell people, you know, they say you're dying. I was in the physical problem. Well, let me just make one more point because it, it and sorry to backtrack in, in this way, but we're sort of back into the language of duality again, as you can hear. And, and, you know, sort of the biggest objection to conceiving heaven as just so easily and simply um, uh, uh, a darkness-free condition of, you know, perfection and love and light is why, um, why do these things exist if they don't have to, then why do they exist? And I think they must, I think they do have to. I think that a being who has no beginning like God, who exists necessarily, um, for him, it may be, um, that, that he doesn't have to go through any painful formative period of learning to discriminate the darkness from the light. But for beings like us, which do have a beginning, which are ex nihilo, which are parts and which are contingent, um, we, we do have to undergo at least a formative period so that the, the ideas of light and darkness and good and evil can make sense to us. You know, that, that is something like my, my, the Odyssey, my, my answer to the question of, you know, if things can be so effortless and e easy, whence then is evil? Why are we here? And, uh, you know, to me, one has to give an answer like that. Um, but anyway, let's get back into what, what Mr. Gardipi is saying. Process, I guess my body function shut down. I was in the process of dying. Then I said, boy, then I got religion. And I, I didn't mean it to be flippant. But when I was thought of it, I said, God, I'll be good for a week. Just get me out of this jungle. And then as I'm dying, I thought, wow, I'm, I'm dying. Is there time? You know, if, if I'm in the process of dying, I said, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. What's going to happen if, I, if he doesn't forgive me? And then, of course, it's like instantly I knew I was forgiven. But I, I did ask for forgiveness. And I said, I'm sorry for what I've done to you, even though it was a selfish motive. But I meant it. It wasn't, you know, people say, I'm sorry, and they don't really mean it. I knew this was my last fraction of a second to, to get things right, and God accepted me at that last moment. Yeah. You said at that interview at Lake Conroe that up till that time you had said, we can't comprehend what God promises. And uh, when you're promised something that you can't comprehend, you figure you haven't been promised anything. Nothing at all. But at the point that you were dying, you suddenly comprehended everything, including God's love. <laughs> I comprehended. You know, I was going to lose God's love if I didn't go back into, you know, during your life you're told there's a loving God. Some people say there's a mean, vengeful God. Most of my life I heard it was a mean, vengeful God. But I said, there's, I'm going to lose everything. And I've got this heaven that I, you know, other people told me about the, the wonderful heaven, so I didn't want to lose that. And the other thing, it wasn't that I just didn't want to lose heaven. It was like even my own father. I did things and I obeyed my father, not because I was afraid of him. My father was a good, loving father, and I didn't want to do bad things because I didn't want to hurt him. Well, it's kind of the same thing. I felt up there, and I've taken criticism for this, and I, I preface it, if I sensed anything, God needs to love. If he has a need, it, he needs to love, and he needs to be loved. Now, maybe need isn't the appropriate word, but... I Again, I love it. This is one of the reasons I love this near-death experience so much. Um, it's a very, as it were, Hasidic idea. Also Taoistic, again, in, in, in the, the, at least in the, you know, the, the sort of unity, unity of opposites 
perspective, you know, like the idea that love requires some kind of vulnerability. You know, the, the idea that it's always sat ill with me is the classical theistic idea of God as some kind of absolutely absolute. And, you know, he's like, if he's absolutely absolute and he's neither personal nor impersonal, but that's really another way of saying he's, he's impersonal, just like David Bentley Hart says, he's, you know, if, if you have something that's beyond good and evil, that's really just another way of saying evil. <laughs> it's <just> not good. <laughs> um, so you've got, you know, you've got this sort of absolutely absolute conception of God, which is, you know, not really personal anymore. And it's impassable that is incapable of suffering. But how is there, how is there, uh, a relationship, let alone love, um, if there is no possibility, if there, if there is no vulnerability or capability of being wounded in that love, God is absolutely without need or dependence to me that, that strikes me as, 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 as incorrect. If you, uh, you know, there, there's a saying from Rabbi Manus Frieden, Friedman that I like very much. He said, who needs whom? Cause we were just minding our business, not existing. And God created us. Um, this is to me like a very Hasidic uh, idea or a very Jewish idea that, that, um, that God, um, God, God loves us in such a way that he is vulnerable by virtue of his love for us. Reconciling the world to himself. God was in Jesus as he as he died on the cross and he was he was he was loving the world and reconciling it to himself. That's something like if you're the if you're the father of some of of some child or of some creation, all of its pain and all of its suffering you're going to you're gonna you're gonna experience too. Now again, I, I think there's a way that I would affirm both the classical theist conception of God and the theistic personalist conception of God. God number one, God number two, um, uh, you know, in PVK's words, um, uh, I would affirm it in the Trinity and say the Father is the, the sort of the impassable aspect of God, the unlimited aspect, which, you know, is as much nothingness as it is absolute being. Um, and then the Son is, is the sort of uh, finite and bounded, if only self-defined, not externally defined, a, a kind of dualistic um, interactive, loving, you know, conscious, essentially, component of, of ultimate reality, which is a consciousness. And so the point I'm really trying to get at here is consciousness is this funny thing that, that is, is its own backdrop and is its own complement. All right, let's get back into it. I don't know another way to put it. One phrase you used, which I thought was very powerful, was... God wants us to run to him. He wants that kind of enthusiasm, the kind of the power of love that he's expressing to us. He wants us to reflect back to him. I'm surprised at the parallel to human emotions that God had. Maybe he put it that way so I could understand it. But I was raised when you, like I've been hurt many times. You go to the church, you should stand at the back of the church because you're not worthy to be at the front of the church and that close to God's presence, which is a joke because he's everywhere. <laughs> I'm sorry if that line was hard to hear. He said, the idea that you stay in the back of the church because you're not worthy to be in his, in his presence is a joke because he's everywhere. That's, that's what Mr. Gardipi said. Or as my mom did, but with my father, because he wanted children to love. And when I went home to visit dad, it wasn't that I cowered in front of my father, just like I didn't cower in front of God, and God didn't want that. He created me because he wanted me to, figuratively speaking, he wanted me to hug him and love him. And he wanted to do the same to me. Yeah, there again, that's a really Jewish uh, conception of God. Oh, no, God wants us to love him. That's why he created us. I guess people have, some people, but maybe they're taught that God created us to lord over us. No, that's, that's nothing could be further from the truth. God created us to love us. And now, now Gardipi is taking shots against Calvinism, <laughs> essentially, whether he says so or not. And I'm also very much in agreement with that. And to have us love him. And he enjoys our love to him as much as we enjoy the love that he gives us. 
Now, at some point, God said, told you you're not ready to be there with him. How did you feel? Well, as I realized how, how wonderful this was, it was nothing like I thought. And then I thought, other people will not realize where I am. If they will think it was the way I thought it was before I went to heaven. And especially my mom, my sister, my brothers, my friends, you know, my loved ones. And I thought, they're going to think I died this horrible death shot up in the jungles of Vietnam. And if people say he's in a better place, man, that's an understatement of epic proportions. So I'm thinking, oh, no. And I said a prayer in a way. I said, Mom, I'm sorry what I did to you. Because I finished a tour and I volunteered to go back. And the first tour was pretty rough. And so had I gone home after the first tour, I would have been okay. So I hurt my mom by going back. She lost one of the, well, would have lost one of the sons she loved. Yeah. And when I started feeling that sadness, all of a sudden God says, wait, you're not ready. And that got my attention. And I thought, well, what do you mean I'm not ready? Well, what did you say? And he, there was no answer. I said, I hope you're not saying that you're going to send me back. I hope you're not going to do what I think you're going to do because you can't show me the love and the beauty and everything in heaven. Now you're going to send me back to my body that's hurt and shot up in the jungles in the middle of a base camp shrouded by the enemy? This is an almost universal uh, theme. Uh, in, in these in, in these um, deeper and richer near-death experiences, the idea that I cannot go back having seen what I saw and that it would be cruel um, to the point of torture to inflict that fate on me. Um, <laughs> it's just like, again, it's like, how does one make sense of that? Um, it, it, it again raises the question, why must this, this as it were, terminal domain of, of darkness and duality, why must it be? If, if things can be so effortlessly easy. I started getting a little resentment. And I said, I'm not going to go. If you send me back into my body, I'm going to make sure I die. Well, he wasn't angry at me, but I felt his sternness. Like I said, I could feel his emotions, his love, his happiness, his amusement, and his sternness. And again, my word's not his, but interpreting some words. The feeling was no, and he said the no twice. He said, no, no, you cannot take this. Only I can give this to you. And if you ever try to take it, it will never be yours. And this is just so eloquent. I, I, I love, I love the, the, the eloquence that you find in the simplicity of Mr. Gardipi's expression. Now, there was no doubt in my mind what that meant. Yeah. So I usually don't talk like religiously, and I remember saying, Father, because I felt like he was my father in a sense, an incredibly loving father. And I said, Father, your will be done. And then he sent me through, and people say that I've heard that they go through. See, notice the language that he's naturally impelled to use through his encounter with, you know, the the the, the all-loving you know, creator of all. And who who in history most spoke like this? It was it was Jesus of Nazareth. It was just one of the many reasons why I, I think he was the real deal. He is the real deal. A tunnel, I think you say a tunnel of light. It wasn't even though it was a bright, beautiful light, it was a tunnel of love. I was still surrounded by his love. Mm -hmm. I went through this tunnel of love back into my body. Now you said there were cast out demons that you saw as you were going back through that tunnel of love that trying to grab you, haul you off somewhere? Yes, I, yes, I got a sense of, that, that, and I say demons because, again, I don't know what other words use, and I have been criticized for that. Some people ask that the term demon, well, because of limited human vocabulary, that's the best word I think people will come up with something that horrible. And I saw all these, it wasn't so much I saw them, I felt their presence, but it was like a dark, shadowy, ugly thing. It was just like a dark, mean, hurting mass. What's really interesting is that Peter Panagor describes his own uh, encounters with demons, and he says that, that the demons that he encountered were two-dimensional. That is to say, they're pure shadow. And, but it was a bunch of them, and they were trying to grab, like me, because at this point, I'm going to my body, I was, I was back in, you know, back like inside my body, even though I couldn't see, I was no longer out in the entire cosmos. And they were trying to grab me, and I was fascinated by them, and I could tell that they were hurting. There was nothing good over where they were 
like I said, nothing bad in heaven, nothing good where they were. I didn't see any souls. All I could see was what seemed to me the cast out angels from the ones that disobeyed God back in the beginning of time. You know, and this is just so terrible and terrifying because why in, in, in the perfect creation of a, you know, perfect and all loving uh, 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 Father, God, why do there exist these demons and these shadows and these these sort of fiends? Um, sort of where I go with this uh, uh, mentally is is um, in in panpsychism, you know, whatever is um, and it is is conscious. It's conscious in a way that corresponds to you know however one initially delineates that system in terms of its function and its relationship with other systems, and if you take the sort of uh, uh, unity of opposites, predicates, and complements ideas seriously, then, 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 just as goodness and love and light exist, then evil also exists necessarily. So there is necessarily, like the consciousnesses, corresponding to like these these evil creatures, or at least evil, you know, sort of psychological processes. And it strikes me as a terrible idea that, that these must exist necessarily with no hope of salvation. Almost as if the price of being in existence was that some eternal torture chamber would, would, inevi would inevitably be created. And some would question whether being is allowable under such conditions. I mean, to me, it must be, if only because non-existence can, strictly speaking, be net, neither better nor worse than existence. And moreover, existence exists necessarily. It has to be. And and if there's good, then there must also be evil. So there's there's no two ways around that. But, you know, what I wonder is whether... See, in the Bible, you got sort of three descriptions of hell, and we sort of, I think, unnecessarily and unwisely treat them as mutually exclusive, and we just argue about which one it is. You've got annihilationism, you've got uh, uh, universal salvation, and you've got um, eternal conscious torment. I wonder if it isn't all of the above. Um, but, but well, it wouldn't be eternal conscious torment. But um, the idea that that within you, you know, you have you have all the, the evil processes which will, will drag you to hell, and, and you have all the, the good ones which, which can be redeemed and make you a son of God. Um, and um, in hell, um, it is conscious torment. Um, uh, insofar as you know, the old you is destroyed. It is consigned there, and and sort of the good version is refined out and and, and retracted up into God's heaven, the primary level, of sort of of His perfect um, conscious existence. And um, you know, I was I was listening to another near death experience the other night, in which. Um, the 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 guest Raymond O'Brien again on NDE radio described having gone to a place that he called the Greys and um, he met some individuals there who were not to his knowledge obviously evil individuals but it's like he felt he had to go there well he he described himself as what a, a, a quote unquote vicious human being so you know one can understand why perhaps in his own mind he f at least felt that he had to go there but there were some people in there who sort of yeah, they, they were they were in the shadows they were in that 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 sheol like place and i wonder if in some way like the 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 shadow as it were the the informational pattern the photographic negative of, of one's true self the, the the evil self that one has to leave behind whether whether these are the demons um, that 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 populate hell, or if there is, you know, the other the other idea that I articulated in a previous episode is that every every creature with a rational nature seeks the good and is, in virtue of that fact, ultimately redeemable. The form or pattern of evil is forever weeded out um, of of existence. But the individuals of whom it takes hold are redeemed. And maybe these two perspectives are just two ways of articulating the same thing. But uh, needless to say, you know, these, these, these descriptions terrify me very much. And, and I think a lot about them. All right, let's go back to Mr. Gardipi. And I wasn't frightened because you can't be frightened when you're still surrounded by God's love. I wasn't frightened as long as I was fascinated and a little bit saddened that, that anything could be so tormented and 
so depressed and so had, had, had no hope. Well, you, I think you compared it to uh, seeing fierce animals that would kill you, but seeing them in a zoo. So the, the bars that keep you from being attacked by the animals, it was like God's love protecting you from them. Right. And even then, at that moment, I kind of actually felt that way of all things, as if I were like at a zoo or at an aquarium. Let's say you're at a zoo and you see the lions and the, you know, the vicious animals that can do you harm. Well, you're not frightened because you know they can't get to you. And there was no doubt in my mind they could not get to me and harm me in any way. So I was fascinated and trying to just take in the experience of because you know, it was a curious thing, but I knew God was protecting me. He was also protecting me from the ugliness. Without protection to see if I could feel even uh, more than I did of their suffering and all, that alone might have killed me because I know they were horrible and suffering, but God just gave me a tiny, tiny microscopic glimpse of what they were experiencing as they were trying to get to me. There must be the frustration. I, you know, I die in the jungle or close to death, go to heaven, and from heaven going back to my body and both ways they couldn't they couldn't get me because God was protecting me and loving me. Yeah. And uh, in a way like God, your gunner had dragged you around the jungle for three hours protecting you from snipers and all sorts of dangers. I mean that's a miracle in itself. Well, poor, yeah, poor Steve, of course, I was unconscious during this time, feeling absolutely no pain. He said during the time I was crying and screaming, which, of course, alerted the enemy. Mm. He said they were following our blood trail. So, of course, he's, he had, uh, I'll say, one bullet wound. He's dragging me around. He's frightened. And then he had to go back to the aircraft, he said, at one point. And uh, we had the minigun, the M60. He was told the M60. I had to go back for more ammo. And he was holding them off sometimes, he said, within three feet of them. to tell though that's that's wonderful well i'm glad you did and i i i hope 
lots of people listen to this because I think this is a very profound account of a near-death experience under incredible circumstances. And I'm sure many military guys have gone through this and have not been willing to talk about it because they're afraid they'll be called crazy or, you know, it will jeopardize their military career. All those, all those sad things that if people knew more about this, they would be more accepting of it. Steve, I'm, I'm sorry to say we're out of time for today, but so much uh, <laughs> thanks in my heart to you for uh, sharing your incredible near-death experience with us. I'd just say thank you for you know, listening to the account of what happened to me. And one last thing I'll leave you with, the, the account that I have given as I have told it, it is absolutely, totally inadequate for what actually happened. I, I, there are no human words, no way to mind can grasp what I went through, but I hope the way I've told it, some people have a tiny glimpse into what God's got waiting for it. Well, thanks again. If listeners would like to hear the show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, please go to Talk Zone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, and listen for free to the complete NDE library of archive programs from 2013 until today. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. at Talk Zone for more NDE radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening. Okay, well, I want to say that I'm grateful as well to first to Mr. Gardipi for you know his service to our country. And for his sharing that that indescribable uh, near death experience, I also want to say that I'm grateful to uh, uh, Lee Whitting and and to all the people behind near death uh, experience NDE Radio. That's um, as you can tell, it's one of the podcasts that I listen to most often, and I'm really appreciative of the fact that they let it be free for everyone. Um, and uh, I'm I'm about to wrap up too. Hopefully. After hearing it, you can understand why I consider this the, the, the dopest, sickest, coolest near-death experience that I've ever come across. Um, and um, if you have any thoughts um, about it, any reactions, any opinions, any questions, just um, reach out to me. Um, reach out to me at my email address in the, the RSS feed. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. I'll see everyone next time.